Hi, I'm Millie Thomas, an eating disorder recovery coach. We've created this podcast to raise awareness about all types of eating disorders and help dispel some of the many myths and stigma that unfortunately still surround them. It feels like it's like a drug. You know it's bad because you know like this is hurting me, but it somehow makes you feel like you're doing something right. My eating disorder started at seven. You get to that point where you just, you just don't know what to do. This is the End Eating Disorders podcast, brought to you by BCU, customer-owned banking for you. It's been a long and at times slow process. <sighs> the eating disorder's in charge and your daughter's not there. Find someone that you trust more than you trust your eating disorder self. I was in tears and I was screaming at the nurses, give me something to eat, my baby is kicking me. You cannot do this to this life that has no voice yet. There is hope. everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I've got the amazing Fiona Luby with me, and we're going to be talking everything pregnancy when you're going through eating disorder recovery. Thank you so much for joining me today, Fiona. It's so nice to have you here. You're really welcome. Yeah, it's been great to be invited. Mm -hmm. So I want to start off with you giving our listeners a bit of an idea of your eating disorder journey, a little bit of an overview. So I developed an eating disorder when I was about 13. I was very unwell at that time. I almost passed away. It took a long time to receive treatment. My parents really struggled with accepting that I had an eating disorder and they also didn't know what to do. I was a dancer and I think in dance training and you combine that with going through puberty and all those things that happened around that age, yeah, I really went downhill. So I managed to sort of semi-recover and get through the rest of high school. I trained with the Queensland Ballet and then moved to Melbourne at 17 and continued dance training. Through all of this, I was in this kind of semi-recovery state and still managed to get through a Bachelor of Dance and a Master's and whatnot. But um, basically, it's probably been about 23 years of anorexia times of being more well and, and times of being quite unwell. Um, my her- first hospitalisation didn't come until about 2016 and I was halfway through a PhD and running my own business. I was literally on the other side of the world in Finland doing some research, came back to Melbourne and put into Melbourne, Royal Melbourne Eating Disorders Unit for three months of bed rest. It took that long for me to recover. I was that unwell. And at that time, I had also developed Crohn's. So that sort of really makes anorexia much more complex and the recovery process. But that period of bed rest gave me time to think about what I was doing with my life. Like I was literally transcribing interviews on my laptop for my PhD while my heart rate was, you know, 32 beats a minute and, you know, my body was really packing up. So that was the decision to move to the coast. That was about four years ago, five years ago. Was it a really hard decision to make? It was, yeah. I felt like 
I was dropping everything. I had a business. I was lecturing at the University of Melbourne and I was halfway through a PhD and I thought, I'm going to lose all my clients. What will the university think? I was going to live with my parents, like in Budrum on the Sunshine Coast, but I just had to humble myself and trust that in dropping everything, there was the potential and changing my environment entirely, that there was the potential for a turnaround and for healing. That's been a long and at times slow process, but then at times a rapid process. And like I have a little boy who's kicking me right now, very hard. (laughs) And that's just like in five years, a massive turnaround. Yeah. Yeah, you, you're amazing. You have literally turned your life around and you've fought so, so hard to get to the space that you're in today. And it's been an absolute privilege to watch you blossom and do that. And it's almost feels a little bit surreal sitting here with you today. And I keep looking at your bump going, oh, that's right, little Jed's in there. And yeah, it's incredible to sort of realise just how powerful you know, our minds are when we use them, you know, in the right way. And and you've been able to use yours to be able to get to the space now where you can have a beautiful little boy growing inside of you. Yeah. For people who aren't really, I guess, initiated in the world of eating disorders, how would you personally describe what having anorexia felt like, you know, from whatever perspective you'd like, you know, mentally, physically, spiritually? I think one of the things that, and I mean, even like, a little bit fearful of it now as I go into motherhood and being at home and nesting more is years and years of isolation. So I had only, my friends were only really colleagues. They weren't friends just for being friends kind of thing. I didn't have that network of people. And I guess in moving to Melbourne when I was 17, I think part of that was actually about the eating disorder fueling that decision so I could get away from the people who loved me and looked out for me, my family, for example, and go on striving. And so it's very isolated, very lonely and very fearful. So I would be fearful of going to any kind of social function, anything like that. I remember I always wanted to go to see dance performances, but the hardest part for me was waiting in the foyer beforehand and having to talk to people. I would literally go and hide in the toilet or turn up late kind of thing and then disappear straight away afterwards and that was quite damaging actually to my profession because a lot of it relies on that kind of in-between communication and crossing paths with people so that was very difficult. I still remember a lecture at university I'd done a performance and she actually dragged me out of the bathroom she said there's all these people in the foyer waiting to talk to you about your amazing performance and I was refusing to go out there to talk to them. So very bizarrely or not so bizarrely, it's quite a common thing with performers is that I was terrified, lonely, isolated in every day. But when I set foot on stage and danced, I still felt like I could somehow do that. You know, it wasn't terrifying and it felt like it was my way, my one way of communicating with the world. And if you look through the archive of my dance pieces, and some of them are really hard for me to look back at. They're very autobiographical. So most of my contemporary dance pieces and study were solo works and it was me performing them. Yeah, but somehow I had the courage to sort of get on on stage and express those. And you can see the shift 
on my website from these kind of very lonely, painful kind of pieces to so much more joy in my dancing and wholeness now. I think physically just having, never having the energy to do the thing that I loved, which is horrible. You know, the eating disorder would tell me, if you stick with me and you stick with my rules and you manage your body and control it, then you will be an amazing dancer. And it was the biggest lie because it literally would eat my muscles. Um, I ended up with fibromyalgia, like just pain, nerve pain all through my body, Crohn's, so unwell. I remember just feeling grey and lifeless when I'd go to get on stage and often the idea of a performance coming up would trigger the eating disorder more because I was concerned about being in front of an audience. And one of the biggest reasons for moving up to the coast was that I felt the only way I could give myself a chance to gain the weight I needed to and for my body to change and blossom was to not be on stage in front of these people that were watching me all the time. So this audience in Melbourne, they were seeing me on stage and I thought, I can't change in front of them. I think they would have been happy for me, (laughs) but I was so terrified and it Mm. was the block. I needed to go somewhere where I could change sort of in private and then now is the process of like sharing on social media with, with all those Melbourne people the transformation and, you know, a lot of them are asking what happened to you and kind of things. So, yeah, but... um. My husband said to me, it's not going to be going back to the loneliness. (laughs) You've got a little boy and um, you've got so many more friends up here. So I trust that. Oh, absolutely. I Mm. mean, look at your baby shower. It was a a testament to that, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, you won't go back into that. No isolation. I won't let that happen. Don't yeah. you worry. I'll be I'll be over for, for Jed cuddles all the time. Yeah, yeah. We'll have Auntie Millie. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And I think what you said before about needing to go away to do it, sometimes you just do. I mean, I came here, I got away from Auckland and sometimes, as you say, to blossom and to just let yourself be, you do need to remove yourself. And I think also it allows you to focus everything that you need to on recovery. Because as you and I both know, it does take that intense focus to actually get to that full recovery space. Yeah. Yeah. Were there moments during your journey where you felt hopeless? Yeah, definitely. I think Probably, you know, in making the decision to move up here and I remember being at my parents' house and for the first year I didn't work, which was probably, or study, it was probably one of the first times in my life that it happened and I would need to basically eat and rest and go to appointments and that was my life and I really struggled with that. I thought I'm losing everything, I'm not going to be able to dance, I'm not going to be able to my brain's going to mush. I'm not studying anything. Yeah. So I think at times there, I lost hope about, you know, had I made the right decision because the eating disorder at that time was, was still speaking to me, basically saying, you're just becoming fat and nothing. Like rather than look at you healing, look at, look at these measurements changing, Look at how much more clearly you're thinking. Look at how much less tormented you are and more peaceful. 
yeah, doesn't um, want doesn't want us to focus on those aspects. No, no, not at all, not at all. So that was like very, very difficult and very difficult for a person who was used to being highly independent and always striving to just surrender. And um, and I think that many people would find, and you probably found this too, that sometimes when you stop, it's almost like you fall into a bit of a collapse, and you actually feel yeah. into the depth and breadth of just how damaged your body and mind is. And I think because you've been avoiding that and so that's very confronting, you know, to feel just how much pain your body is in from, you know, all those years of not looking after it well. I felt the same, you Mm. know, and it is that surrender. Yeah. That all you you realise that there's nothing left and you have to surrender and you have to make yourself vulnerable and you just have to let go and I, I for me I talk about it as taking that leap of faith yeah. but it is really scary when you realize what your eating disorder has driven you to you know you are a shell of who you were before and that physical devastation that it is you know wrecked on your body is it's immense and it's it is as you say confronting mm. how did you hold on to to hope in those moments where you were feeling hopeless I think I still kept creating. Dance has always been my little outlet. So I managed to connect with another lady who's now my best friend up here and she just had a little boy three weeks ago. (laughs) She started to teach me how to do silks, which is like hanging from a tree in a silk, acrobatic type stuff, but you can do it quite restfully. So there's a park nearby and she would come and pick me up and we would do that and we dance together and I'd, I'd just go to the park and dance. I did some volunteer ribbon dancing with men with disabilities and I guess just started to dream up some projects and move in really small ways still. I started to learn the full Tai Chi series <laughs> and Tai Chi is beautiful because it's so minimal in terms of energy expenditure and yet it's still like really working your brain very hard and that movement of energy is so powerful exactly they used to tell me to not you know lunge so far and move my arms so far it was always about pairing it back and and that was really good for me to learn to move in that smaller way and so instead of just sort of giving up and and thinking I'll come back to dance when I'm ready I still continue that in small ways and that gave me some kind of hope I guess yeah yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. dance has been such a formative part <laughs> of your recovery, hasn't it? Mm, it's yeah. really been almost been like a motif right throughout, something that you've just come back to again and again, which I think is so beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Did you ever think that you would be able to have a baby after everything that you've been through? No, no. I I went to Melbourne last year on a trip and – it sort of spontaneously for work and I ended up meeting up with my psychologist of 10 years down there who was also a dancer she we had dinner together which like that was amazing having dinner with her (laughs) the novelty factor will never wear off and the fact that you know I was married so I'm sitting there telling her I'm married and we're eating together and married I eat we're drinking cocktails (laughs) and um And we talked about, you know, I was saying to her, I would like 
children. I don't know if it's a possible next step. But the thing is that she tells me often, you used to sit in your appointments and tell me that you would never get married and you would never have children. And she would ask me to talk to her about the life that I dreamt for myself. And I used to tell her, oh, I just, I'd love to have a little apartment of my own and a golden retriever named Bruce and <laughs> and wear bright coloured clothes. And that was like the picture of my life I had. And I had just basically resigned to, you know, that's kind of a nice life, but I'd resigned to something that wasn't really me and wasn't full because I had this feeling that with not having menstruated. So because of um, the combination of anorexia and intense dance training, like ballet training, I didn't menstruate until I was 32 and I'm now 36. So, I mean, that's a testament to how rapidly the body can heal if it's looked after. But, you know, in saying that, I still sort of feel like I've got this miracle baby in me. But I think that um, I decided I wasn't going to have children and I didn't even have that desire in me because I think when your body's really unwell, you don't have that desire to have children like that most women have. Yeah, I think, and it's interesting because I've, I've, I felt the same way. And although I loved children, the doctors would say to me, well, if you don't, you know, if you don't start eating, you will never have children. Mm. And it was this weird thing of where I was completely disconnected to what that meant mm. almost. And I think that's because we're so severed from our emotions and our soul and we are so just caught up in our eating disorder that we can't we can't fathom a life outside of it or the future or anything like that. So it doesn't mean anything. We don't care. Well, we don't care if we can't have children. Mm. And it's not until once we get into that recovery space and we realise, well, actually, yeah, I do want to have that option. But I mm. felt the same way. It was mm. like there wasn't that innate sense or that instinct, that mother's instinct. Yeah. Yeah. I think it shifted like it was even only probably two and a half years ago, three years ago up here. I held my uh, sister-in-law's little baby, Abigail, and she was absolutely teeny and she'd literally come out a few hours prior And I was looking back at the photo and of everyone holding her, I looked the most terrified. And I still was working hard on recovery and wasn't doing that well at that time. I almost looked a little bit sort of grey and I remember being really anxious about going to see her. It was very confronting for me. But I feel like Abigail in my life, she's now absolutely gorgeous and loves to dance holding her planted some kind of seed in my heart that actually I did want children. And so it gave me a really good life goal too. So probably about a year ago that I decided that since I was medically stable and doing fairly well in my recovery that I would um, change to working with some practitioners who were more about my life goals. So I changed to a dietitian who specialised in women's health and fertility. I was on her waiting list and before I even got to see her, I already fell pregnant, but that's, you know, but that can be really helpful too, I think. Yeah. When you get to that point. 
Yeah, switching to, so the focus isn't just on the eating disorder yes. all the time. Yeah. I think that's great. Has pregnancy changed your relationship with food and your body? Definitely. Yeah. Morning sickness will do that. Um <laughs> <laughs> Initially, I just had this wonderful sense of permission to eat anything. I felt really free. I thought, I'm just going to go for this. This is amazing. Like, <laughs> And then I think definitely when you actually start to, I mean, it took a long time before I started to have any kind of visible bump. But when that starts to happen, it can be quite, confronting and there is a sense that you're losing control because your body's just doing all these amazing changes and it's kind of like in a way no matter what you feed it or don't feed it it continues to do the changes because bodies are amazing like that and so that is a little bit problematic because then you sort of can be in the position of well I could feed myself really well or I could feed myself semi-okay and the baby's still growing fine. And so I felt like at one point when I lost my appetite due due to some um, life circumstances and possibly some antenatal depression that I sort of just surrendered to it a little bit and didn't fight it and it wasn't fighting enough for me and Jed and sort of going, well, if I'm even if I'm not hungry, I still need to eat to keep up with this growing baby. I was able to move out of that. And yeah, I mean, particularly now when you run out of tummy space, like <laughs> there's not much tummy space left. It's just little bits often. But again, that freedom of I'm just going to eat whatever I feel like eating because who knows, could be going into labor afternoon or whatever like there's a sense now of needing to eat for the journey ahead as well so it doesn't just stop when the baby's born the birthing of the baby and then breastfeeding and just you know looking after this new little life who will want all of my attention all the time and need that for a time so preparing for that and and fueling for that absolutely I want to talk a little bit about you had a bit of a space where you needed to go into hospital because you weren't quite managing to meet the nutritional requirements that, you know, Jed needed. Mm. If you're comfortable speaking a little bit about that and how you made that decision and because I think it'll be really, really valuable if there are other mothers out there who are going through recovery to know that it's okay to reach out for help. Yeah, so I think it was around at 26 weeks I hadn't gained a great deal of weight. You know, it's very uh, dependent on different practitioners and their views on things, but the ones that were treating me felt like this was not really tracking so well. They'd set me a goal of 12 to 18 kilos is normal for someone who's smaller in pregnancy to gain that that amount of weight. And I remember saying to you, oh my goodness, I don't know how I'm going to do that. But then in saying that, I thought, well, I've done you know, big gains in my life. I can do it. Yeah. And I couldn't even imagine how it would carry on. <laughs> like, where's it going to go? <laughs> you know, kind of thing. So, but yeah, so I, I was not really gaining a whole lot of weight. I wasn't medically unstable, but I had lost my appetite, which is not normal for that stage of pregnancy, usually quite hungry. 
in talking with my practitioners about it, who were very good and we work really well together as a team, we were concerned, they were concerned, I was concerned. And so there was this thought, well, if I was to focus on eating more and, um, you know, spending some time with my parents again and just focusing on eating and being accountable for that, that I may get refeeding syndrome because I hadn't been eating well for a couple of weeks. It was thinking about that risk that I agreed to a voluntary admission into a hospital so that I could be monitored as I built up my food intake again. And so we all thought, well, this will be great. I'll go into a hospital and I'll have some rest and time out, focus on my eating, get it back on track, and then I'll be able to go back into the world and enjoy the rest of this pregnancy. So that was the plan. But unfortunately, what we experienced was that in the hospital system currently with the National Eating Disorders Protocol, it doesn't accommodate for, it has nothing written in it regarding a pregnant woman. And so just things like pretty much from the the beginning to the end, things went wrong, a lot of miscommunication, but also a lot of misunderstanding about how do you work with a pregnant woman. Well, I remember, you know, I remember the first thing when you got the NG tube put down and they were going to send you for an x-ray, for example. Yeah. So, you know, that happened. And, um, and my husband just said to me, I I don't think you can have a chest x-ray, you're pregnant. And there's a lot of debate around the safety of that. And we got so many different stories and opinions that we couldn't actually make a decision about it and they couldn't test it otherwise. And so that was difficult because, that went in and was left in and was really uncomfortable but never used. Uh, I was very happy to eat as well and so, you know, it's difficult when people want to do it a certain way and aren't really working with you, particularly when you've gone in voluntarily and you've gone in for the best interest for yourself and Bub, but but Bub primarily and, and even because the tube was in, they followed the protocol and so there was nil food or drink for about, 24 hours while they decided what to do with me. And that just, just, that (laughs) floored me when you told me that, I just, that absolutely floored me. And it was like this mama bear in me rose up. It was like, I was in tears and I was screaming at the nurses, give me something to eat, please. Because my baby is kicking me and you can do this to me, but you cannot do this to this life that has no voice yet. You know, And so it was very eye-opening to see how the system just doesn't quite understand how you would deal with a person in my position. Bed rest is really, full bed rest is really inappropriate for someone who's pregnant because of the circulation and risk of blood clots already being higher in pregnancy. And it's mighty uncomfortable, (laughs) I have to say. And that was even though I was medically stable and could walk and everything and no blood pressure problems. And so I again had to fight to even be able to stand up a couple of times a day. But, you know, my whole body was really sore and to have to have an air mattress and clicksane injections and you just think it's crazy. Like you could just let me walk to the loo and back through the day and the circulation would be going kind of thing. So, and then I think too just the, you know, I did about four meal increases or meal plan increases in a week. And that's very difficult when you're running out of stomach space. So a slower refeeding would have been, I guess, just more kind. Like I was crying one night after having all this food and all this resource and I was so distressed and 
I thought, is this the kindest thing I could be doing for myself and my baby at the moment? And I actually wasn't sure. I thought that I had made the right decision, but I, I started to wonder about it. Yeah. Yeah, that's really it's hard because mm. you it wasn't an easy I know it wasn't an easy decision for you to make. Yeah. And you went in there thinking, right, I've done done the right thing yes. and then to receive the type of treatment that you did. It was I uh, yeah. And the the assertion that I wasn't in a way like being a good mum and uh, that I wasn't ready for it and that I hadn't been engaging sufficiently in community treatment even though I had been, you know, really had. I had been really trying with that. And so when I came out of hospital, I had to do a lot of work with sort of throwing off those things had, that had been spoken over me and believing that I can be a great mum and that I never wanted to compromise Jed's health in any way and I I was trying to do the responsible thing and I was listening to what the medical advice was and it was that you know that that just slight possibility of refeeding which I I didn't get but refeeding syndrome I thought I don't want to risk that with him so I, I felt like I was making the right decision not an easy decision to go into hospital but then probably I would say that of all my hospital admissions, it ended up being the most traumatic one I've ever had. Yeah. What do you think needs to change? Because obviously there is a great degree of lack of support and understanding for those who are struggling with an eating disorder and pregnant. So what would you like to see change? I think that what gets in the way is some of the ways that medical writing describes anorexia so as a a chronic lifelong illness that can be managed but never fully recovered from that's a difficult one for everyone trying to recover and you know there's as you would be aware there's a fair amount of debate around whether someone can or can't ever fully recover in their life and be completely free of it the other thing I guess that is out there is a sense that people with an eating disorder don't fall pregnant. Interestingly enough, just a few months ago, two of the other women that I spent time in hospital with in in Royal Melbourne Eating Disorders Unit, both have had babies. And it's funny because I wouldn't have even imagined that particularly for one of them because of how unwell she was. But it really does happen. And I think that if we could get that out there a little bit more, as well, that it it does happen and it can happen. But I think the thing is that for any woman who falls pregnant, and I noticed this in my best friend, even if they've never had any struggles with body image, it is very common for women to struggle with the amount of change in their bodies that happens during pregnancy. And they will commonly, the dialogue becomes this kind of oh my goodness, you know, I, you know, you talk to them, they say, oh, it was massive in my pregnancy. You know, a lot of women just gain a lot of fluid, but other women will gain so much weight. And it's, you know, often just driven by what happens with your hormones and those kinds of things. But they'll say, oh, I just felt like a big, you know, blob or whatever. And wore my tent dresses and, you know, kind of thing. So there's not really a lot of positive dialogue around pregnant bodies. And so 
it's been really interesting recently to be working with a couple from Melbourne and he's an obstetrician and they're writing a pregnancy wellbeing book and it's actually designed to be, you could give it to a woman as a gift at their baby shower or when they fall pregnant because it's absolutely beautiful the way they're putting it together. What they're trying to convey in it is a sense that pregnancy can be an absolutely and is an absolutely beautiful thing and that women can be strong and continue to move. And so I've been helping them with some of the yoga photos and they had another woman doing strength training and all kinds of things. It was very evident in talking with this obstetrician that they don't commonly come across people with eating disorders who are falling pregnant and this is very new. And what was exciting about him was that he was really interested to hear my story and interested to hear how medical practitioners during my hospital admission had looked at me through the lens of anorexia rather than honour me as a pregnant woman and put me up in the maternity ward, not an eating disorders ward kind of thing. So it's lovely when you come across someone who actually wants to learn and is really interested to hear about this. And it's been the same with my obstetrician. Here she has openly said, I've actually never worked with someone who had a history of an eating disorder. And so I really am interested to learn from you. And I've even been consulting with a friend of mine who's a social worker and had an eating disorder to get some advice kind of thing. But she again is very upfront saying, look, I haven't been in this space before. The midwife that I've been now allocated, she worked with younger women in Lismore. So looking more at, I guess, um, women who accidentally fall pregnant in their sort of early 20s and that kind of thing. And there's drug use and eating disorders going on with them. And so she's perfect in the sense that not many midwives would have experience in that space. But again, she's really wanting to learn from looking after me, basically has said, we just need a lot more research out there. There's nothing there. Like I asked you of us people, mm. is there any literature I can read on this? And there literally is, is nothing out there. So I think that it would be wonderful if more people like myself and those women in Melbourne could start to share their experience. Oh, because that power of that lived experience mm. in this space just be huge, not only from, from a research perspective, not only from clinicians gaining insights, but also for people to not feel so alone in the process yeah. and for, that, for there to be that sense of connection and community, which we know can be so powerful. Yeah. Yeah. So I've been logging my journey and dancing my journey through pregnancy in the hope that I would like to work with women. Um, I have a movement studio and and work with women in the future, both through their pregnancy and then once they've got bub kind of thing, particularly women who struggle with body image and hope that my experience might inspire and help them. Um, I've never felt more confident and more strong in my body than I do now. It's, It's amazing. Like I've never weighed this much. I never believed that I would feel like this, you know, it's, it's been absolutely amazing. And I'm actually 
a little bit sad to lose my bump. <laughs> Someone said to me, she said, oh, my friend makes some um, maternity clothes and I'd model them for her and I'd strap on this pretend belly under the dress. And she said, you can borrow that if you like afterwards. But, um, you know, and that's that journey that's to come, which you've offered support in will be interesting as well because it is very common that women will struggle with their body image post labour and there's a lot of pressure in society for women to just bounce back into shape. and Back into shape, yeah. You know, very quickly. And I have been saying to my husband, you know what, I kind of like to keep a bit of this extra weight. Like I never thought I'd like it but I do like it and (laughs) how am I going to do that, you know, sort of thing. So... Yeah, it would be very interesting and, and again, I'll track it so that in the future hopefully I can share that story and um, the tools and things that I use with other women. I think that would be so, so valuable because I know that you're already such an inspiration to so many and so the fact that you're tracking everything and then, you know, as we enter that next chapter after Jed is born very, very, very soon (laughs) and just just take it day by day, week by week and navigate it. And I think the key there is just, you know, support and being open and reaching out and being vulnerable and saying, hey, this is what I'm experiencing today and I'm finding it really hard because there isn't any, just like there's no book, rule book for recovery or step-by-step guide, there isn't for this either. And I think there is going to be such value in your experiences and sharing them with others. Is there... A part of your pregnancy journey so far that you've you would say has been the most challenging that you've found the hardest probably the slowing down <laughs> you know I think that and this is not necessarily specific to eating disorder but the, the the way of our times is that women in particular are tending to find their identity in their work and find their self-worth in their output I guess in a way and the prospect of being at home and just nurturing this little life and not being out here, there and everywhere doing everything has been absolutely terrifying. And even now I've had people saying, you've got to slow down because it's going to be so shocking for you (laughs) soon when you just end up at home. And that's how it has to be at first too, because you need to settle into a routine and you need to recover from the labor and all of those things. But Yeah, I have to say that's probably the thing that's terrified me the most about the journey and that will be interesting to track as well. So how can I be and still feel great self-worth like in myself as a woman and because that really affects one's eating and behaviours and that kind of thing is how we feel about ourselves. And so, you know, can I find that sense of self-worth not in what I do but who I am and looking after this little man um so I'll keep you updated on that one (laughs) that's so right yeah (laughs) but um you you would know that and I think that it's a common it's a very common trait particularly with anorexia to be very driven even once you recover physically you can still and you can often then put that extra energy into doing more and more you know and get really excited kind of thing so but in saying that you know that they've sort of scored me high as a risk for anti postnatal depression and I'm just throwing that one off and 
putting some strategies in place. So to be that balance of one thing that I've been looking at is how do you use social supports and nutrition and things um, in order to avoid that potential. And so um, one thing that has been said to me was, well, actually, why don't you continue some of your arts projects? So (laughs) Jed's going to be strapped on. (laughs) So we'll see how that goes. And and that sort of has alleviated, I guess, a little bit of that anxiety about I'll be doing nothing and I won't be dancing um, just to have these little things to potter and and projects to work on. Yeah, just little things, Mm. little things to do. But then also being mindful that if it does get too much and you just need to hunker down, that you've got the ability to pull back and go, okay, I just need to be. Yeah, and and the prospect of maybe mentoring a younger dancer to be me (laughs) standing there, I'll stand back with the baby and, you know, that could be lovely too. In fact, my motto is a little bit, you know, that I aspire to inspire and so maybe working with a younger dancer would be a wonderful thing to do also. Well, you're truly living your motto already because yeah. I know that there are several people who have said how inspirational you are and with the, you know, the work that you've been doing with Dead with the dancing and things like that, you do inspire. So you definitely do that. Thank you. What has been the most valuable thing that having anorexia has taught you? Um, I would say determination and believing that what in the natural may look completely impossible can be turned around with the right ingredients. So I think for me that if you take yourself out of that environment that is not working for you and you go and wonk yourself somewhere completely different, which is a terrifying thing to do, it actually can be life-saving and is is worth worth doing but everything i think in our human nature is to stay with what we know and just keep doing that and then we wonder why we don't see change yeah that's very true yeah finally if there are some words of wisdom that you could leave our listeners with today what would they be that the turnaround can happen very rapidly so you may have been struggling for for example myself was 20 plus years it doesn't have to take 20 years to turn it all around it can be really rapid you know at times this last five years of of turning things around has felt long and slow but when you look back at it you think man like in the scheme of married things. and have a baby <laughs> and all of these things that is actually very quick so when facing the idea and you're sitting there contemplating that leap of faith to know that it won't necessarily take 20 years to turn around 20 years it, it could happen really rapidly if you're really in that space of i don't want this anymore i want something different for my life you know that's the biggest thing If you're committed to that, things can actually change really quickly. I believe that wholeheartedly because it was my experience as (laughs) well, as you know. And Mm. I think 
there is a lot of rhetoric out there about you know the average recovery from anorexia is seven years and yep. all of those things and you know it can be done you know, I did it in six months and it is but as you say it's about wanting something more mm. it's about the letting go the surrender the leap of faith mm. you've got to be all in mm, for that to happen yeah you are absolutely incredible I am beyond proud of you and everything that you have achieved and that you continue to achieve and of that little baby inside, which I can't believe. I mean, gosh, it could be this week that he pops out. So (laughs) any day. I cannot thank you enough for coming and sharing your beautiful words of wisdom and yeah, your experiences. And I know without a doubt that there are going to be so many people that are going to listen to this and get so much out of it. So thank you. Thank you so much, Millie. There is hope at endad.org.au. This is the End Eating Disorders Podcast, brought to you by BCU, customer-owned banking for you. This is a Casco Media Production.